Our passage is from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. Here's the reading of God's word. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Amen. That's the reading of God's word. You may be seated. We are in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And last week we spoke about the nature of the fight that we are fighting. You might be wondering why we're spending so much time, and we will this week, next week, and the following week, talking about Satan. You might be wondering why are we spending so much time talking about Satan? I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He says, ignorance is one of the greatest causes of stumbling. And if we do not understand who Satan is, what power he has, and what the extent of that power is, we won't be able to confront one of the key components to our fall and our struggle as a Christian. Paul writes again, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We want to know exactly that. How do we stand against the enemy? The way we stand is that we do not underestimate him. We understand his tactics, who he is. The Chinese general Sun Tzu, in his uh, classic work, The Art of War, he says this, if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles If you know yourself, but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. And that's what Paul is writing about. He wants us to not to succumb to every battle. And the more we're ignorant of the enemy and his schemes, the more we will succumb to every battle, to every test, to every dart and flaming arrow that he throws our way. And so we will examine this infernal enemy for the next few weeks and we'll look at his identity, his strategies, and his armies. And today, what we're going to focus on by looking at his identity is we're going to cover essentially two topics. The first is his origin. Where did he come from? And secondly, All the names that the Bible gives, we won't cover all the names because there's many, but we'll cover a number of the most important ones that describe his character, his nature, who he is, and why he is the way he is. So first, his origin. We must never think that Satan is the opposite of God. So he's not a an equal figure to God just in the negative. He's not the evil where God is the good. Instead, Satan is a created being, created by God way back when. He was an angel 
We see this clearly in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 16. He is the image, he being Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth. That's a very important phrase. All things in heaven and on earth were created, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So clearly, Paul is laying out for us that Satan is a created being, Way back when, before even human beings were created, Satan was created. And he was but an angel. He was there to do the bidding of the Lord. Therefore, as a created being, we know that Satan is not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. He's not omniscient. He's not all-knowing. And he's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere all the time the way God is. He's also not a, a force. He's not an evil force. In other words, there wasn't this evil force in the, in the ether somewhere and it somehow took control over him. Rather, Satan is like a, the Holy Spirit, a person. He's not an abstraction. That doesn't mean he's human because he isn't human. He is a spiritual being, but he is a person in that he has a mind, he has a motivation, he has a will. So therefore, he always acts with intent. Also, we know, according to chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 in Genesis, we know that he was in the garden. And at that point, he was already evil. About this time, Peter gives us a little bit of a picture as to where Satan came from. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, Peter writes, God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of nether, nether gloom to be kept until the judgment. Jude also records in Jude 6, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. In other words, there was a point in time where Satan and his angels, now what we refer to as demons, they did not want to, as Jude writes, stay within their own position and authority, and they wanted to be like God. So there was some time, somewhere, where Satan and his angels were existing, desiring to worship God, and then suddenly turning and rebelling and turning away from God. There are two Old Testament texts that sort of speak to this time as well. One is Isaiah chapter 14 verses 3 through 23 and Ezekiel chapter 28 verses 2 through 19. Both of those passages are very interesting. They speak of earthly kings. The first one in Isaiah speaks of the king in Babylon. The second one in Ezekiel speaks of the king in Tyre. But biblical scholars and theologians note that those passages, while they speak of these earthly kings, they're so exaggerated and speak of things far beyond earthly ideas that most theologians think that these speak very much in the same way uh, of a typology, of a type, meaning that this earthly king, even though as evil as they are, they speak of something beyond themselves, meaning and ultimately of the ultimate evil king of Satan himself. And so in this, we look at it and we see this to be the case in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15, which says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. 
how you are cut down to the ground. And by the way, O Daystar, Son of Dawn, is where we get the word Lucifer. You who laid the nations low, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high, but you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. I mean, it just doesn't seem to make sense that the king of ne- of uh, of uh, Babylon is brought down to Sheol or most high. Secondarily, the the text in Ezekiel chapter 28 verses 2 and 16 says this, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of the gods in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and no God. Though you make your heart like the heart of a God, so I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. So again, both of these passages, they really do speak beyond their earthliness. Even though they represent earthly kings, they also point forward or point to something even greater than themselves, which is Satan. Jesus also gives us a picture of Satan's fall before Adam and Eve in Luke chapter 10, verse 17. Luke records this. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And some scholars believe that this refers to Satan falling ultimately when Christ defeated Satan at the cross. But there seems to be a bit more when Jesus is saying that he's seeing Satan falling from heaven. Meaning that as just as the God who is overall, who is before all things, he's able to see things that no human being could ever see. And one thing that we know that Jesus saw is the fall of Satan before the beginning of even the beginning of the creation of human beings. So we know a few things clearly. Satan preexisted Adam and Eve, any human being. Due to Satan's pride and arrogance, he and his cohort, they rebelled against God. They were cast down. And while they have power now, and it is a great power, let's not underestimate that power. But that power is finite in time and extent. We must always remember that he is not equivalent to God at all. In fact, God is infinitely superior to Satan. And so we never need to consider Satan's power to be so great that it's insurmountable. No, only God's power is insurmountable. So we know much about the origin of Satan from scripture. We also know his names and through his names, we know his character. Again, let's not underestimate Satan. Jesus called Satan the armed strong man who breaks into your house armed, fully, ready to destroy. Peter calls him the roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In Revelation chapter 12 and chapter 20, Satan is called the great dragon, an old serpent, an old great serpent. So the Bible and Jesus very specifically makes it clear that we must never underestimate Satan because he is powerful, he is strong, he is cunning, he is deceptive, he is fierce, he is a destroyer. And while these 
descriptions give us an idea of just how powerful he is. We also learn much about Satan's character by the different names that the Bible uses to describe him. And by these names, we know his tactics. And by his tactics, we know how to defend ourselves against them, which Paul again speaks of when he talks about put on the whole armor of God. So let's look at some of these names. First, Satan. The word Satan is a Hebrew word for the word adversary. And Satan truly is our great adversary. And he is also ultimately God's adversary. He opposes everything that God desires, everything that God does. This name appears in Job chapter 1 verse 6 where Satan hatches this plan against Job. And Satan despises God so much that he's always trying to cause God his utmost pain. How does he do that? How does Satan, as God's adversary, try to bring pain to God? By being your adversary. Satan knows that the way that you will inflict the most pain upon someone, sometimes it's not even through bringing pain on that person. It's bringing pain on their loved ones. As much as especially a good parent, they will protect themselves, but they will sacrifice themselves for their children. So too, Satan knows that God cares deeply for his children. And the way that he intends to bring his greatest pain against God is to hurt you and to hurt his son. And so we must never underestimate the power of what it means for Satan to be an adversary against God. It's always going to be an, being an adversary against you. Secondly is that Satan is called the devil. The word devil is a translation of the Greek word diabolos, which means one who separates or seducer. He is doing all that he can to seduce, to allure, to bring you where? Away from God. That's what he wants most. He doesn't care if you are going to enjoy or love anything else, including yourself, as long as it is not God. Anything he can do possible to make sure that you do not have an inkling for God is all he cares about. That's the very nature and characteristic of Satan. That's what the Bible describes. He's always working to separate you from Christ and his gospel. And he wants nothing more than to keep you from actually believing and trusting Jesus. And so he will use bad things to make that happen. He will use good things to make that happen. Anytime you are distracted from God, angry at God, apathetic towards God, know that the devil is at work. Those are not circumstantial happenings. They're not random feelings. They're very intentional. Also, anytime you are tempted to remove yourself from the fellowship of God, specifically through his people, Know that Satan is at work. Anytime you're tempted to separate yourself from your spouse, your husband or your wife, maybe through conflict, maybe through weariness, maybe you've just grown tired of that person. You might say to yourself, you get used to them so much that you need a quote break. Anytime you want to separate yourself from your parents or your children or the church, 
know that the devil is at work. Again, that's not random happenings or just mere feelings. He knows very cunningly that the way to separate you from God is to get you away from his people, to get you to be lost. You'll always be looking to run and hide. You'll always be thinking something or somewhere out there is better. Think about this time period. I mean, it is such a unique time period, and it is so easy to separate yourself from God's people. I mean, we are physically separated right now. In many ways, Satan is fully at work in tempting and keeping you and saying, you know what? You don't even, this is, look what you're doing. You're watching television. You don't even need to do this. This isn't real worship. So forget about watching. Forget about coming on Sundays at 1030. It's, it's, it's no big deal. And notice as time goes by, slowly, maybe you're thinking, well, I can watch it at 12, maybe at 1 p.m., maybe at 10 p.m. And you know how this works is that as you put it off, just like your quiet time, spending time and reading God's word, the more you start giving allowances to yourself, the, the line just gets pushed more and more to the point where slowly we just forget God completely. Satan knows the tricks. He's very, very sneaky. And you'll always be thinking, I can do something else. See, the prowling lions know to get the wildebeest away from the herd is the primary way to actually pounce and devour. You have to take that one animal away from the flock. This is why one of the greatest battle cries of the Bible is found in Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8, Paul reminds us that Jesus' great power at the cross keeps us from being separated from him. That's why Paul describes us in saying that we're more than conquerors in Romans 8, 37 through 39. It's a war there. There's a battle that's happening. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul writes, for I'm sure that neither death nor life Listen to this, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Because the devil is trying to separate you and the cross is the great reconciler. It's the joiner, brings us together so that nothing can separate us. The next word that's used to describe the devil is the name accuser. In Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1, the devil, Satan, is described as this accuser. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and standing, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Now, in this passage, Satan acts as the prosecuting attorney against the high priest, Joshua. The big question is, is Satan giving wrong facts against Joshua? Actually, according to verse 3, we find out something very interesting about Joshua. Zechariah records, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments, meaning he was a deep sinner. You know, at this time period, Israel had completely turned from the Lord. They were 
running away from him. And Joshua, the high priest, the high priestly system was completely complicit to that. They were just following what the leadership was doing and vice versa. There was this constant turning away. So Joshua is standing there and Satan is saying, see, you are filthy. You are rebellious. You deserve God's judgment. There is nothing good about you. You are idolatrous. Satan isn't saying something that's untrue, actually. He's saying something completely true about Joshua and Israel. So what do you think should happen in that instance? Should blessing come? Listen to what Zechariah continues in verses 2 to 4. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? So Joshua is standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. The garments of his heart are filled with sin. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Joshua and Israel, they do not deserve mercy. So again, what Satan is doing is he's looking at these people who are absolutely guilty of sin and rebellion against God. And Satan is saying, you deserve judgment. And he's saying to God, see, these people are failures. They have rejected you. They turn away from you. They're sinners. And God rebukes Satan. And then he says, I'm going to change their clothing. I'm going to do the work of saving them. I'm going to redeem them. I'm going to transform them. I'm going to show them mercy and grace. God is going to intervene and he's going to change their clothing. And he's going to give them, instead of the filthy garments, he's going to clothe them with a robe of righteousness, his righteousness. How would that happen? Well, that's just predicting and looking forward to God's own son through his righteousness, who would bear the wrath that is rightly deserved for Joshua and Israel and for me and for you. And he would bear that wrath and his righteousness, his robe of righteousness, metaphorically speaking, would then be taken and credited and clothe us and Joshua and Israel. For those who believe and trust in Jesus, Satan wants me and you to believe that we are not good enough. And you know what? We're not. But what he wants us is to be so caught up with us not being good enough that we can't see that actually this is why we need to run to a savior. This is why we need to call out and cry out to God for mercy and to recognize that he does show us mercy. He wants us to question God's goodness, God's power to save. He wants us to think that there is no way because when we look deep in our own hearts and our own sinfulness, when we've seen what we've done in the past, we think to ourselves, there's no way God could save us. There's no way he could love us. There's no way he would use us for his purposes and his glory. Satan is constantly saying that to us. He's accusing us of this. But we know for certain that God can and does save. Look at how just awful this accusation is. In Revelation 12.10, 
John records, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers have, has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. He doesn't take a break in accusing you before God. Day and night. But there is a salvation that has come through the authority of his anointed one, his Christ, his Messiah. He has taken all of that which we rightly deserve and Christ at that cross has borne the punishment meant for us, the chastisement, as Isaiah calls it in Isaiah 53, meant for us. And through that, the accuser has been hurled down, thrown down forever and ever. So he is perpetually saying, you're not worthy. But the whispers need to be torn away and, and thrown away from us instead by saying, I know he, I am not worthy, but Christ is worthy. That's what it has to be pointed towards time and time again. When you hear the whispers, know it's satanic, but there is an antidote. Christ is worthy. Christ frees us. Christ shows us grace. And that empowers you and me then to show grace to other people. We can't just say, I receive it and I'm thankful for it. We have to then have gracious eyes. We have to then go out and look at all the others who have messed up in our lives and say, I'm ready to show mercy. So let's respond to the satanic character with the gospel of Christ. Next is that he is a liar, a deceiver, and a father of lies. Jesus reveals this characteristic to us in John 8, 44. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. Jesus says this is his character. Lying. My friends, to lie is the worst of all sins, you might say. It is the core upon which Satan attacks me and you. It is so powerful, so deadly. We underestimate lying, which is why, parents, if you are ever interacting with your children, there could be all sorts of disobedience, but the one disobedience that you want to really make sure you are dealing with is lying. Once lying happens, all relationship is destroyed. And lying means you are a child of the devil. You are, your father is Satan. And that's why we have to fight that to its utmost. It is a power. And that power is corrosive, it controls, it destroys. There is no greater power and tool that Satan has than deception and lies. He uses it to control us and the world. And think of it this way. If he can get a failed artist to think that all the world is against him, especially those Jews, and he creates a nationalistic fervor in Germany where those who hear him are thinking literally that's a message of hope. And you might see those video images of Hitler with the swastikas and all the people chanting and shouting. You might think, how could people 
buy into this lie? Well, it happens because there is an enemy at work. And for those people, that sounded like hope. The reason why lies work is they never sound evil. They always sound good. They always sound promising, hopeful. But those lies kills and it kills millions of people. Think of it this way. If a lie can convince a high school student to say, you know what? All those kids who are picking on you, they deserve to be killed. What you need to do is go into your, your parents' closet, their gun safe, and take a gun and go, and you can get all of the vengeance that you want and satisfy yourself. If you can convince a pastor, a famous pastor, to gain, be more interested in material wealth, in sexual favor, in spiritual power than in Christ and the gospel, you can not only destroy a large church, but you can destroy the very reputation of Christ to all the world. You just have to just be convinced that maybe a spouse, your husband or wife, they're not so thrilling anymore. And so you're working late at night and suddenly the lies that come in through a computer screen or through a, a coworker. If you can convince yourself that you don't look good enough and so therefore you need to lose a certain amount of weight or take certain steps to physically change your appearance because by doing so, you'll be better off with your life. Forget about health. It's your image and their voices saying, the world thinks of you this way and only if you change that. The lies are endless in our world and they are ongoing. And until we see the Lord face to face, they will not stop. We will talk continually about this when we talk about the flaming arrows, the darts that the enemy throws. There are so many of them. Never underestimate the power of a lie. It is demonic. We have to think of it that way. Whenever you hear a lie, even a white lie, that is satanic. It is what he uses against us. The next are a bunch of phrases and names that are somewhat similar to each other. And I'm just going to group them all as one. We could have gone through each one, but it would have taken too long. So instead, I've grouped them all together that are different names, but sort of speak the same thing about Satan. He is called Beelzebul, God of this world, ruler of this world, prince of the power of the air. All of these world words have one thing in common. Satan rules over this world. It's not to say that we do not see God's grace in this world. Ultimately, ultimately, God created the world. He is ultimately in charge. But in this time period, as long as until that day when Satan is cast into the lake of fire forever and ever, Satan still is the ruler over this world. He is permitted to do so, to reign over it. And we see this because he even tried to use this power against Jesus in the desert. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 9, we are told, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Again, we're going to talk about the reign of Satan next week. But Satan can use many things in this world against us and against God. He uses people, nations, systems, animals, physical objects, even natural occurrences like lightning 
as we see in the book of Job. He uses all of these things. In fact, we're told the very name of Beelzebul, which means Lord of the Flies. So he reigns supreme in this world. He's conniving, stealing, destroying. And usually he does this through his lies and deceptions. And what's his greatest deception in this world? It's that he controls all the different parts of it to make it something that you and I treasure more than Christ. He wants you to love something in this world more than Jesus. And that's why Peter warns us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, meaning that we're not meant for this world, that we're travelers passing through. He says to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. There is a war going on. It is the love for the world. It's a passion for the world. It's a passion that is delighted more in the world than in Christ. And it is a slow but steady love that passion comes. Peter says again, notice the imagery that it is a war for your soul. And Satan knows this. It's a devilish war. It's a spiritual war. The thing about Peter is that he's not just saying this randomly. You know, he experienced this himself. Do you remember the words that Jesus warned Peter of in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 32? He said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. What does that say? It says that Satan is constantly even saying to God, I want this person. I want this person. I want them for my work, for my purposes. But God protects us through his son. Do not underestimate how often Satan is actually saying, I want this person. I can't tell you how many times people have an interest in knowing Christ as a non-believer, as an unbeliever. And my friends, that is one of the most dangerous points of a person's life. Because at that point where they are slowly turning and listening, know that there is a spiritual war for that person's soul. Satan will not let go. So if you know people like that, if you have a family member or a friend or a coworker, and you've been sharing Christ and different people have been connecting with that person. I hope that's happening. But if, if you see that, that is the time you have to surround that person with prayer, with a constant vigilant awareness that Satan is trying to sift that person like we. If a person is in leadership, this is why I actually ask you to pray for me and the elders. It's not because I want more prayer than anyone else, which I <laughs> I do need that. But it's because Satan is attacking us. Because he knows to attack you is to attack his shepherds, Christ's under-shepherds. And so we need your prayers. Satan wants us to not be in this building. Surrounding this building is all sorts of different religious organizations that do not preach the gospel that we preach. And he knows Christ to be exalted in the Bay Area, in an area he's doing everything he can to stop us. We need your prayers. 
Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He is the ruler of this world. And he knows that if you love the world, if you love its pleasures, if you love its power, if you love its riches, its systems, you will come to worship the God of this world. There is a way out. Jesus, whose kingdom is not of this world, destroyed the work of the devil. We saw this in John, 1 John 3, 8, that he destroyed the work of the devil. He didn't settle for momentary pleasures. He took the long view of being like us. The devil tried once to get him to take the short road, to relax, to hang out, to forget about the cross. But Jesus would trust the Father in his will. He would obey perfectly because he knew that to do so would be, we, would be to win us back. He would win. And by doing so, he destroyed the works of the devil. How do we respond to that gospel, to that glory? By faith. We believe Jesus. We stand. We do not falter. We know that our mighty captain has paved the way. He has won victory over sin, Satan, and death forever and ever. And therefore, we stand alongside with him. Let me close with Martin Lloyd-Jones's um, exhortation to us, and I believe in response. Believe God. Do not believe the devil. Believe God. Accept his forgiveness. Thank him for it. Rise up. Stand on your feet. Go on as a man. Watch and pray and continue the fight. That is the only way to deal with it. Do not grovel in the dust. Do not listen to the devil, to the voice of the accuser. Do not be depressed. But having repented, believe the word of forgiveness. Feel that you are washed again in the blood of Christ and go forward, being circumcised circumspect and careful as to where you place your feet. My friends, let's stand. Let's not falter. Let's move forward and stand. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you are glorious and wondrous and true and righteous. And you are the God who has won victory over sin and death, and the devil. So we pray that we would be able to rightly believe by faith in what Christ has accomplished on the cross, that we would stand together with you. We need not be afraid. We need not doubt your kindness and your mercy. You are with us forever and ever. And we can trust in you. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.